Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32, and Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together... Let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Patrick. Hi, my name is Casey Kramer, and I'm the pastor of Children and Families here. Uh, And um, I was asked this morning, hey, Casey, did you draw the short straw uh, uh, with with your topic? Today's topic is Jesus' divorce and remarriage. I said, I didn't draw the short straw. What I did was just make sure the expectations were so low I could only get better. (laughs) But today, I'm I'm actually very glad to open up the Scriptures with you, uh, having... um, spending much of my time actually working with families. Um, But I I feel like to say a couple things first, um, this is a very difficult topic to discuss. We we all bring a lot to the table here today. Um, And many godly Christians disagree on the matter as well. So my hope today is to speak with a sensitivity. Um, I don't wish to add to anyone's distress, and um, it's also not a, a subject that I could completely cover in a matter of 30 minutes. Um, but because we are going through the Sermon on the Mount series and we value the systematic study of Scripture, it's important that we um, talk about this. As Pastor Scott said a few weeks ago, he said, it, it is not good to listen to just some parts of Scripture and not other parts. The life of a Christian is, what, is that we must follow all of it. Otherwise, it leads to an unbalanced life. So let's pray together. Let me uh, lead us in prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, you are so good to us, and we have so much to be thankful for this morning. I thank you that uh, you have left clear instruction and teaching on such a tough subject of divorce. I just ask that you would guide my lips and guide our hearts as we place this subject at your feet. Teach our hearts and guide us this morning in your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If a picture is worth a thousand words, then a video has to be a million, right? We're covering uh, life uh, in front of a screen in our forum. This is a a very important topic, and and the uh, filmmaker and director Barry Levinson says this, nothing uh, nothing has as much impact as a moving image. It stirs our passions, our outrage. The right images put together can tell a very good story. Isn't that true how media and film can paint such a beautiful picture of things? 
Now, I'm biased. My father taught uh, mass media, media film at my high school, but I love movies. I find them fascinating. I find that they're the best way of explaining emotions for me. They can take you to a place where you're not comfortable to go to in conversation or you wouldn't pick up a book on. I learned certain emotions uh, through movies like hope, good and evil, Star Wars, right? Uh, bravery I learned from Indiana Jones as a young kid, and uh, as a, a young teenager, I learned my humor from Tommy Boy, from Super Troopers. The idea of love for me was Forrest Gump, right? I love you, Jenny. We all have these short list of movies that teach us important aspects of emotions or of relationships. But what about divorce? What is the movie for you that define divorce or define the emotions of divorce? Now, uh, depending on your age, it could be Kramer versus Kramer. It could be the first wives club. It could be waiting to exhale, or it could be Parent Trap, the original, or the remake. But for me, I learned a, a deep pain associated with divorce came from a very unexpected movie, Mrs. Doubtfire. Now, you might, you might giggle at this, but let me explain. The movie's about Daniel Hilliard. He's played by Robin Williams, and he's a, a very um, devoted but unreliable father of three. He gets in an argument with his wife, Miranda, played by Sally Field, and Daniel loses custody of his children. But he learns that his, his ex-wife is looking for a housekeeper, so he does what every uh, desperate man would do. He dresses himself as Euphigenia Doubtfire, puts on a prosthetic mask, and starts playing the part of a good, a good nanny. <clears throat> it's quite a funny movie. He improves on his parenting skills. He improves on his cooking. And Robin Williams is, by far, personal opinion, one of the funniest actors that I've ever seen. But he's special not just because he can make people laugh. It's because instantly, when he makes you laugh, then he'll bring it home. He'll stop. He'll communicate a deep sense of pain in the way he communicates. The funniest scene of the movie for me is he's messing with his case handler for the child's custody, and he goes through about 15 different voice impressions. It's hilarious, and he finishes his monologue and then gets serious. His smile falls from his face, and he looks the woman in the eye and says this, ma'am, bottom line, I need to be with my children, and I'll do anything to be with them. Tell me what to do, and I'll do it. Even in comedy, there's a reality of pain in divorce. My heart sank the first time I saw that. Divorce became real to me. It became painful. It became fearful. The reality of, uh, is that the pain of divorce has affected us all in some way. It's evident in our movies, but also evident in our lives. It's the effect of, of the fall. How has divorce affected your life? We could all talk about it. I, I, I imagine virtually everyone here has a story to tell. Maybe your parents were divorced when you were young and the stability of your home slowly dissipated. Or maybe you're, you're married, but you talked about divorce for the first time with your spouse and it scared you and you haven't brought it up to anyone else since. Or maybe you're single and you just don't want to get married because of the pain that you've seen others participate in. And you don't want to be risked, uh, risk the hurt. These realities aren't new. This isn't new to society. In fact, divorce has been this way since uh, all of biblical times. That's why Jesus was teaching about it on the Sermon on the Mount. That's why we're talking about it today. He explains it in Matthew 5, and he explains it again even further in greater detail in Matthew 19. Why is this so prevalent? 
Jesus said it himself. It's because our hearts are hardened. It's because of the hardness that we hurt others that we love. That we are impatient with the ones close to us. That we choose lust over loyalty. But there is a beauty that holds us all together. It brings us in the room today, and I hope you can hear this from me, if anything, is that God restores us. He restores us to himself and to others. He restores our hearts, and he calls us to respond in our relationships with an undeserving grace, the same grace he gives us. Now, how does he restore this? What does the process look like for us? I'll I'll talk about three points today. First, he restores our hardened hearts. He restores the sanctity of marriage. And he restores us with a a suffering love. Hardened hearts, sanctity of marriage, and a suffering love. First, God restores our hardened hearts of marriage. Our sinful human nature is to minimize marriage and the sanctity of it to fit our needs. And Jesus is teaching about this on the Sermon on the Mount. And he's going through the different sins And there are six statements which start with, you have heard, but I say to you. The first is he's teaching on anger, the second on lust, but the third's on divorce. And what's interesting is he's he's saying these statements uh, and not destroying the law, right? He says, I've not come to destroy the law, I've actually come to fulfill it. He's also teaching uh, that the comparing of the law of Moses to his new teaching is not what he's about. He's not comparing his, Moses' law to his law, saying, hey, this is the new law. No, no, no. He's actually saying, I want you to look at your wrong interpretation of what God's law has been for eternity. Because God's law is always right. So let's go to three different t- uh, parts of time here. Let's talk about Moses' day, Jesus' day, and our day. Okay, the hardened hearts in Moses' day were that they were trying to manipulate the law. Jesus uh, expounds in his teaching in in chapter 19. He confronts the Pharisees about their interpretation of Moses' law. And this law, just to give you a little background, is from Deuteronomy 24. Check it out, the first four verses, if you'd like. And he gives a law about divorce. You might say, why would God give a law about divorce? Well, Moses enacted this law to protect his people. There was utter chaos of divorces going on. Divorces were happening for any and every reason. And so he was protecting the, the women and the people who were put out of the home because there was no reason other than if someone felt like it, they could divorce. He also created a law to, to create a process. that the, the, This bill of divorcement meant that two people had to sign off. Two people needed to be convinced that this divorce was legit. And thirdly, he made the divorce permanent. His last line in the law said that if you divorce, you cannot remarry the same person. He did this because men were taking advantage of the system. They would divorce their wife and then try to get a second dowry from the father-in-law. And they were able to, on a whim, divorce and get undivorced. See, men's hearts were hardened in, the, in Moses' day. But they were also hardened in Jesus' day. In the first century, the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus about it, right? They're saying this, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And there are two rival views of the day. The first was the school of Shammai, where the Pharisees took an orthodox view, where there's absolutely no reason to be divorced ever. It was not allowable. And the second one was the the school of Rabbi Hillel. It was a more lax, permissive view, where Josephus says this. He said, a man could be divorced from a wife for any trivial reason. For example, if she burnt her husband's food or if a man caught the eye of another woman, he could write a certificate of divorce. 
Well, that just wasn't right either. And so the Pharisees were calling Jesus out. They're saying, which one do you stand on? Are you orthodox or are you permissive? They were looking to find and catch Jesus on his words. Now, we're no different uh, in, in America, right? I, I read this article uh, by a History Crop Cooperative. And what they did is they summarized uh, the divorce law from the last 500 years. It was quite interesting. And, and what it said was that uh, even before the U.S. became a nation, divorce was a hot topic in the colonies. The earliest instances of divorce law came in the colony of Massachusetts Bay, where they created this judicial tribunal to deal with the divorces. After 1776, the law was less restrictive. More people could get divorced. The problem was yet it was still difficult for women to have rights. And that was until 1848, where the Married Women's Property Act came, and it gained these women more rights so they could have access to property and to the finances. But still, divorce was still uncommon. In 1920, uh, there was a, a trial marriage set up by some of the states where you could actually try out marriage without having to be married, and it was legal. <clears throat> it didn't work well, but they tried it for a while. Uh, in the 1950s, the law firm started specializing in divorces. In the 1970s, there were things called no-fault divorces, where neither party was guilty and it helped bring down the court costs, uh, made it easier to be married. But do you see the pattern? The intent of the law was to try to help minimize the issues, minimize the financial distractions. But what happened was it actually minimized the sanctity of marriage. It's not the changing of the law that brings safety to people. You can't seek the law to solve all the problems. But it's the upholding of the law, of God's law, that keeps us. It's the freedom that comes from actually the confines of the law, the freedom within the confines of marriage, the self-denial for one another. So that brings us to today. I, I recently read an article um, about Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin. They were a couple in 2014 that... Uh, said after 11 years of marriage, uh, their son Moses and their daughter Apple, they, they were going to um, separate. But they didn't use the term separate. They used the term conscious uncoupling, which then became famous. It's conscious uncoupling is a process for uh, a five-step process for how to get through an incredibly painful experience uh, and come out with integrity with the least amount of damage possible. Uh, it wasn't legally binding. It's not a legal separation or divorce. But they said that if we can just call it a conscious uncoupling, perhaps some of the pain will go away. Uh, they missed, in my opinion, I think they, they, where they tried to minimize the pain, it actually got quite confusing for their kids. She, she wrote later on about her marriage now. Her, she calls it a, a parent marriage, right? So the parents are uh, still together, but um, yet not romantically. She says this, we spent a lot of time together. He's been away, talking about Chris, last night, but at midnight, he came home and slept here to surprise the kids in the morning. We all had breakfast. He took them to school, so we're not living together, but there's more, he's more than welcome to be with us whenever he wants, and vice versa. I sleep in his house in Malibu a lot with the kids. We'll have a weekend all together. We're still very much a family, even though we don't have a romantic relationship. Confusing. Kids, would it be confusing to you if you lived in a house? where your parents didn't love each other that way. Uh, Chris Martin wrote in Rolling Stone, I don't think about our divorce very often. I don't see it, uh, marriage as that way. I think it more like this. You meet someone, you have some time together, and things just move through. 
So he's, what he's saying about marriage is it's like a vehicle. You, it's for a season, and it comes and it goes. You use the mileage, and then you move on. Marriage can be minimized if we don't see marriage in the way the Lord sees it. It also can be idolized. Marriage uh, can be seen as the ultimate thing. I'm guilty of this. I remember um, all through high school and college and, and afterwards seeking a wife because I thought I wouldn't truly be fulfilled unless I had one. I looked to it to find happiness, true fulfillment coming from a relationship, finding the right person. The pursuit of pleasure could put marriage in an idealized state. You marry the person because he thinks you think he'll make you feel better, you, that she will complete you, to use another movie quote. Or perhaps maybe you demonize marriage. You want nothing to do with it. You, it's an outdated situation. You don't want to have to deal with marriage because it's inconvenient. Limiting yourself to one person. I guess asking the question to you all today, is your heart hardened to marriage? How do you see marriage? Do you see it as something that you can minimize for your own uh, benefit? Do you idolize it because you think this is where you will find your complete joy and satisfaction? Or do you demonize it, saying, away with it, I never want to be married? We all have struggled. <laughs> from, from Moses' day, Jesus' day, to our day, throughout the years, there's a struggle of marriage. And I hope by the end of this time, you're, you're tasting, you're saying, okay, well, what is the answer? The answer is that we, honestly, our hearts are hardened. We need to ask the Lord to guide us. That our hearts are hearts of stone, yet he gives us hearts of flesh. He removes our heart of stone. He removes our hardened hearts. And he removes any sinfulness that we may have trying to minimize marriage or idolize it or demonize it. All right, so we have hardened hearts. Casey, we get it. Okay, but now what? what? What's the answer? Well, Jesus restores the sanctity of marriage. The Pharisees asked that question. They basically say, hey, what are the grounds for divorce? Verse 3, they said, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And how does Jesus respond? He responds the way he always responds. He doesn't answer the question. But what he does is he responds with a definition instead. He actually defines the sanctity of marriage. He says this, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. What he's saying is marriage isn't a contract. It's not a sacrament. It's so much more. He's bringing us back to what marriage was intended to be with Adam and Eve in the garden. So what is marriage? What is it? Well, first, it's a God-given ordinance. Jesus is saying the Creator said. We are made in the image of God, and we are made to do God's bidding. Right? We're given this image of marriage to, as a foretaste to something greater. Right? It's, it's a, an ordinance given by God. And secondly, it's a permanent one. One flesh. The two become one flesh. We're united to another person forever. Now, a good illustration for this, uh, I, I saw this first um, in a sex ed class uh, in um, grade school, but imagine two pieces of paper, right? And you take some glue, put them together, and let them sit for a few hours. 
What happens when you try to roll, pull them apart? It doesn't work, right? The two pieces of paper have become one. And the same works for, uh, for marriage. Oftentimes, it is really painful and difficult to separate what's joined together. It, it, it isn't simple at all, especially in the 1920s with those tryout marriages. I can't imagine they were good to, to, to try out marriage, to live with one another before marriage. It, it can be very difficult and hurtful and painful. Now, you might be here today, you might say, all right, Casey, you know, what, I, I'm, not, I'm not married, I'm single, and so what does this talk have to do with me? I feel like I've just been zoning out and, and uh, uh, you know, doing some Google searches on some of the things to check and make sure Casey's saying the truth. The disciples uh, did the same thing. They, they listened, they got a little discouraged, they're like, wait a sec, is marriage really for me? They, they say in, in chapter uh, 19, verse 10, Jesus, if this is the case for a man and his wife, it's better not to marry, right? Well, forget it, you know? And Jesus responds, not everyone can do that, but for some it's good. You might be here today and wonder, is, is the life of singleness actually what God's calling me to? Well, I'll, I'll encourage you, uh, there, there is only singleness in heaven. If you are single and see that as God's calling for your life. That is a beautiful thing because you're actually being prepared for heaven more in some ways than a married couple. Marshall Siegel, of, he authored The Not Yet Married, The Pursuit of Joy and Singleness in Dating. He quotes the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. I would love for you to take a look at that if you'd like to learn more. He says this, the single life can be relatively free from relational anxieties, worldly distractions, and wide open for worship, devotion, and ministry. If we have the gift, Paul says, skip the ceremony, literally, and enjoy your undivided devotion to the Lord. He later goes on to say, ultimately, we will all be single forever, and we will all be gloriously good. We will have our final marriage forever, joined together with our Savior, our first love. And we'll know that when the marriages here on earth really were just a short, small piece compared to all that we have in Christ. Jesus says marriage is a God-given ordinance. It's permanent, it's exclusive, and it's not for everyone. But it's also very graceful. Jesus is very graceful in, in a broken marriage. Look at the, the way that he addresses those in this brokenness. I think this is beautiful. You know, Pastor Scott mentioned last week that Jesus never condemned, condemned those who committed adultery. Uh, he didn't cast a stone at the woman called in adultery. The woman at the well, he never shamed or scolded, but he offered the grace, something that was so much more than she had. In fact, Jesus, in this essence, by he's, when he's saying uh, a divorce is permitted by uh, adultery, what he's actually saying is that the current law, which was stoning, was no longer valid. He was being so gracious in his time. Now, perhaps you're here today, and you're that person. You, you, you've been in an adulterous relationship. There's shame and there's guilt. Maybe this happened before you came to Christ. Maybe this happened after you came to Christ. But it's, it's something that you need to hear that Jesus offers us, that even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It's a lie from the depths of hell to think that if you're a believer and you've repented, that you are out of the kingdom of God. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that graceful? 
Jesus restores the sanctity of marriage and restores those in sin by bringing us and offering us himself. And lastly, he, he restores us with a suffering love. Now, I know I said singleness was uh, a great way to prepare yourself to heaven, but I think marriage is too. There's something about being exposed relationally, physically, emotionally, uh, showing our flaws at someone for the first time or every day, and giving them the freedom to reject us. It's really scary if you think about it. You know, uh, marriage is very messy. You know, if, if, uh, if we were an amen church, I'd probably get an amen from some of you today. Marriage is really messy. If you don't believe me, just ask my wife. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's hard. And uh, oftentimes, we don't know what we're doing. You know, I've been married almost seven years, and I still feel like I'm trying to figure it out. I'm still trying to get on a bike and try to learn how to, how to balance. Marriage endures suffering of all sorts of evils. There's stressful jobs. There's chronic illnesses. There's cancer. There's Alzheimer's. There's sick children. There's loss of pregnancies, unemployment, depression, poverty. There's so much evil that, can, that marriages often have to bear the weight. Marriages also endure all, uh, all sorts of sins, theft, idolatry, adultery, violence, pornography. There's so many examples in Scripture of, of hard marriages, right? You might be thinking, man, marriage is tough. But this is, this is beautiful to me. I looked at a, a list of some marriages in, in the Bible, and I said, well, at least mine's not that bad. For example, Abraham, the, the father of Israel, betrayed Sarah. I actually have a great marriage. And um, if my wife asks you, uh, please tell her I said that. Uh, Abraham, the father of Israel, betrayed Sarah to a harem uh, of an official in Egypt, right? What about Isaac and Rebekah? They each had a favorite son, and they lied to each other to, and deceived each other to get ahead. Abigail and a foolish husband, Nabal, was an issue, right? She almost died because of her husband. And then David's wife, Michal, this is an interesting one. She once loved him. He once loved her so greatly, but then... Over the years, she learned to despise him and actually confront him. Jezebel propelled her husband Ahab into a deeper sin. And Job's wife urged him to curse God and die. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Yet what do all these people have in common? Right? Besides Ahab, regardless of how broken these marriages were, these people are sitting at the feet of Jesus. He loved them so much that he was able to see beyond any brokenness of this world and say, come to me. The Bible is one long story, a love story. It's better than a movie of a suffering lover to an unfaithful spouse. Now, how are we unfaithful? Because we are that spouse we seek our own desires, not God's. We distort marriage to fit our needs. We're not willing to suffer for our spouse's sake. We're not willing to suffer at times for our Savior's sake. Yet he still chooses to love us. Yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. I'll close with three examples of a suffering love. First of a friend, second of a prophet, and last of our Savior. I uh, <clears throat> had this friend um, a few years back. He he was uh, he's in his he's in his forties, fifties now, and uh, he lived with this woman 
and she had been married before, and they had met in high school. They were high school sweethearts, uh, rekindled their flame uh, 20 years later, and uh, it was after uh, a long time. She'd had a bitter divorce, and um, she immediately um, began, began, she got sick. She started dying of cancer, and um, he moved in with her because uh, she wanted to stay in her home. And so he started taking care of her. And he's, he, he's a, uh, he worked um, in retail, had no experience with um, medical needs, but he was willing to make that sacrifice. He spent the last, the three years, uh, last three years of her life caring for her as she was passing. He had to leave his job to care for her. He, he, uh, uh, I remember one day, oh, I can't tell you how much uh, it's so um, real in my mind, but I walked into the house one day, and he was vacuuming up um, his carpet. And I said, what are you doing? And the house smelled terrible. And what he was explaining was that there was, his, his wife could not control her bowel movements. And so while she was out, he was steam vacuuming up the mess. He said, I just want to make sure that I can get it clean before she gets home. She, she died while uh, he was holding her hand, and then a few weeks later, her children uh, from her previous marriage uh, told him he had to leave the house because they wanted to sell it. He hadn't even collected his thoughts, and he was told to leave. After giving up everything, he had been given up and been thrown out, literally. But yet he was willing to suffer for someone he loved. The prophet Hosea, you know, before we move on, I do want you to know that there is, a, there is a, um, a suffering love and there's also an abusive love. And to be very careful about the two, because there is, a, there is times when your faithfulness to the Lord means that you need to remove yourself from a relationship when it becomes too much. This, so the second story is about a prophet. The prophet's name is Hosea, and he's told by God to marry a prostitute, Gomer. He marries her, and she has children, and he lives a life for her, and she lives a wayward life. She goes back into her, her line of work, uh, and the whole point of, of Hosea for us is to learn that a wayward, a wayward life, uh, a wayward wife living a wayward life is how we are depicted in God's eyes. We sin. We run from God. We care about our own needs rather than our Lord's. Yet Israel's unfaithfulness, right, and obstinacy are not enough to exhaust Jesus' love for us. There is an undeserving grace that he offers us. And he says, listen, there is no messiness. There is no messiness that is too much for my love for you. Jesus is our Hosea. We are Gomer. We are off giving ourselves to the things of this world, and he remains faithful to us. We see our relationship with him, with God, as a conscious uncoupling, where we can, we can minimize the relationship so we can have what we want and have him too. But then, lastly, there's the true bridegroom, Jesus. When our hearts are hardened, his heart is soft. When we live waywardly, he brings us back to him and invites us into his arms. He redefines marriage, right, to tell us, no, this is not the way you should live. 
the way that God intended you and made you to live, that's the way you get to live. For our sake, right? Yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How many of you need to hear that today? That you may feel so unlovely, but yet you must know that Christ loves you. He pursues you. He wants you. Jesus is faithful when we're not. We're adulterers. But instead of divorcing us, he gives us his life. He says, what God has joined, let no man separate. Right? He talks about marriage. But he's also talking about that with our marriage to him. God has joined us. He has knit our hearts together with his. And there is nothing, all of you, that we can do to be separated from that love. Nor height, depth, sins, nor angels and demons can separate us from his love. And so you're married. Maybe you're married here today. I want to leave you with an encouragement. God has given you an ordained relationship, an exclusive and permanent relationship. And it's our gift that we still have the opportunity in this life to not hold that lightly, but to actually live a life of undeserving grace for our spouse, to deny ourselves for that other person. Let's be honest, it's not a matter of if brokenness will happen in our life, right? It's when. And at that moment, you'll be in that brokenness. You'll sit there with your spouse and you'll say, what do we do? Whether it's your fault or theirs, some brokenness will happen, and how do we respond? We respond with the same undeserving grace that our bridegroom gives us today. And as we come to this table, we can taste and actually experience a part of that, that love, that we can actually confess our sins to our groom. And he still says, come, eat, eat the bread, eat the wine, take my body, because I am given for you. Great is his faithfulness, Lord, unto us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are, and I'm thankful for your faithfulness, that there is nothing that can separate us from your love. Lord, thank you that you would love me and pursue me. Lord, bless these people. Bless the relationships that they have. Bless the future relationships. Lord, bless those who are devoting themselves to the life of singleness. May it all be a way for them to show the undeserving grace, to reflect the grace they've been given by you. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.